Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Nigel Smith, who is the co-director of Taylor Mac's Holiday Sauce, which is running at the current through December 1st. Nigel Smith is the artistic director of a company called The Flea in New York City and the associate artistic director of Elastic City and has a career as a performance artist and as a director. And before we get into talking about your career, let's talk a little bit about Holiday Sauce and your work with Taylor Mac. How did you first get involved with Taylor Mac? I was working with this incredible artist, Lady Rizzo, who is this phenomenal chanteuse of the downtown art scene and around America and the world, in fact. And she and I were working on a Joe's Pub commission she had, and she was creating this piece about her life and how her character come into being, and her character split off into these trans versions of herself, and she says, I have the perfect person that I want to bring in to play one of these characters, and she said, Taylor Mac, and I went, yes, absolutely, because I had seen Taylor's work when he was in residence at the Here Arts Center in Lower Manhattan, and had just fallen in love with this piece he had made called The Young Ladies Of, in which he was investigating his relationship to deceased father and that early history of imagining who his father was. And I mean, here was an artist who was like queer and investigative and a wonderful storyteller and like used theater in its full form. And so, you know, we brought him in for Lady Rizzo's piece and we just fell in love with each other working together. He asked me to start, you know, developing some things with him. Were you working at the public at the time? I was. I think so. I think I was just finishing up a residency at the Public Theater. I was being mentored by Oscar Eustace in artistic direction. What was it at that point that you began developing? Do you remember? Taylor had this play here, H-A-R. We actually staged it. The first time we staged it was here at the Magic Theater in San Francisco, thanks to Loretta Greco, who really got behind Taylor's vision. And Loretta and I had met when we were both working at the Public. And that play was... You know, it, it does two things really incredibly well. One is it asks, what do we do with the patriarchy and the history of patriarchy, both in the form of the theater and in our lives? And when we follow our zeal, our liberal zeal, how far will it take us? Will it destroy us? And so we, we played that here, and then we took it to Minneapolis, and then we took it to New York. And so after three productions, I think we were married. So <laughs> so what was your next production with him? 24-decade history of popular oh. music. Aside from being 24 hours long, it's also sort of halfway between a play and a concert, so it's a completely different world. What element did you deal with? Because you're the co-director and Taylor was the other co-director. I think one of the great ways that we made it was we made it in front of people. So 
he would do these little one and a half hour or three hour concerts and I wouldn't touch it at all. I knew what was going on. I knew what the ideas were and he would do the first performance and I would show up to the first performance. And then afterwards we'd have feedback sessions. We'd talk about, oh, is this the right movement for that place? You know, do we want to add a song here? Do you want to end this moment with a button? So I was the outside eye, you know, Taylor created all that and then I would come and look at it. You know, early on in the process, we were lucky enough to get a residency at Sundance Theater Lab, which meant Taylor, our arranger and music director, Matt Ray, and myself, we were in residence for six weeks in the mountains with nothing else to do but think about the show. You know, Taylor had a draft of all 260 <laughs> pages of this. And it, it very much is a concert with banter and, you know, and, and different little stories inside of it that tie it together. But, you know, we sat in a room for those six weeks and just tossed out ideas and I gave you know him dramaturgical feedback and then you know as we moved into production it was really like guiding the designers and thinking about how the space was coordinated with Taylor coming up with different modes of participation you know and so it's a 24-hour piece you don't just want to sit in your butt for <laughs> that long so it's like and also the piece is about how a community forms over a durational period and so like what are the rituals and moments of participation that are allowing us to do things for each other to help each other out to put our uh, our bodies and minds and words on the line i mean one of my favorite moments in the piece is we have a blindfold musical chairs which just sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> but actually it's you know it serves the work you know for an hour we are recreating looking at doing the metaphor of what it means to survive from a war the war of 1812 to not be able to see, to be not blinded physically, but to be blind to where love is. And so for an hour, we are blindfolded and move around and have these sensory interactions with other audience members. At what point and how did Machine Dazzle come into it? <laughs> Machine's always into it. I mean, Machine was, like, there was never a question about whether Machine was going to be involved. One of the things that I think is particularly special about the Taylor Mac Machine Dazzle collaboration is they share a vision. And, you know, Taylor has impulses around what the, where the works want to go. And Machine then manifests those impulses with, you know, his own point of view and like unearthing. I mean, one of the things that was incredible was, you know, Taylor saying, okay, we're going to do the Civil War. And inside the Civil War, I'm going to be portraying both the North and the South. And Machine comes back with a costume that has hot dogs and barbed wire. <laughs> and what's great is like, so you've got red and yellow that are in some way symbolizing the North and the South, but hot dogs were invented during that decade. <laughs> so then he incorporates hot dogs into the costumes. And I remember early on in the press, you know, Taylor's like, I want you to meet Machine. I think Machine's the designer for this. Uh, we had a wonderful date and I now have Machine designing my productions. We're doing a new play this spring at the Flea called Southern Promises. It's written by Thomas Bradshaw. Uh, so Thomas Bradshaw is, I think, one of the most incendiary and pointed playwrights of our time. You know, he writes plays about our history as Americans and particularly from the point of view of black African-Americans. And this play, he looks at how an abolitionist man, white man, in the South, 1840s, Virginia, starts off as an abolitionist, and by the end of the play, he becomes a better slave master than anyone else on stage. 
And Machine is going to be doing the costumes for that. <laughs> Does Machine do anything beside the costumes, sets or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, Machine is a total artist. For Holiday Sauce, he's doing the sets and the costumes. It is a, The whole visual world is Machine's. The other day I said to him, I was like, I don't want anything to go on stage unless it's had your eye on it. I think of Machine as creating the spaces for our dreams and our story and our queer aesthetic to sort of all take root and shape in front of us. Nigel Smith, let's talk then about holiday sauce. I was trying to get some kind of idea from what I saw online about what this show is, because I haven't seen it yet. And all I could get is its material from 24 decades. Mm -hmm. Is it all material that has been reconstructed? No, I mean, look, there's a couple songs from 24 Decades, but most of it is songs chosen specifically for this concert. You know, there's a number of familiar tunes. There's some, I mean, they're all familiar, they're all popular tunes. I guess by familiar, I mean, there's a number that are like holiday appropriate in air quotes (laughs) and others that are like, wow, these songs should be part of our holiday experience. At the core of it is like a great concert that celebrates the families that we want to make the families that have embraced us, a worldview of inclusion and also of questioning, you know, why the holidays has become so commercial or like why we have rituals that don't serve us totally. But it's, it's really, I think, a way of making a dysfunctional holiday season more functional for all of us. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds so highfalutin. What the hell am I talking about? <laughs> In putting it together... Was it Taylor's idea to do the holiday thing or yours? Or did you just kind of have coffee one day and say, let's do it? It was Taylor's idea. You know, we, we were batting around a ton of things after 24 Decade. Because one of the things that happened on that project is we made a community. You know, Not only were we making communities with the audience, but like the artists involved. We just wanted to keep making things together. And we were batting around ideas. And, and Taylor was like, oh, it would be great if we had something that allowed us to do this come together every year. And of course, you know, the form of holiday show, it just zing, boom, dang, you know, (laughs) it's a time of year where you want to be around people you love. And so why not make this thing where we can all hang out and and make a a great piece of art? It was announced at the Curran almost a year ago. At that point, was it kind of like just a name that you then put together? <laughs> you know, Taylor had an image and an impulse and some and some heroes that he wanted to really lift up in, inside of the work. And so those little points already existed. But just like with 24 Decade, it began as a concert he put together. You know, I wasn't there for rehearsals. I showed up for the day of the show. And during that day of the show, I gave some feedback and I was there that night. Taylor is an incredible artist. Look, I don't want to put myself out of a job, but he could do this all on his own, except he can't sit out in the audience. That's my job. <laughs> so I get to sit out and, and have some thoughts about things. You're doing something different as co-director with Taylor Mac yeah. than you would normally do as a director at the public or the flea or wherever. Yes, yeah. You know, typically my directorial process, I get the script or I get the outline and I conceive of the whole world and I'm guiding it all forward. And with Taylor, I think of it as I'm like his relief pitcher or his right hand or I'm that person who just, you know, sits out and questions and pushes and and has ideas and 
I find it thrilling uh, because I'm not responsible for everything <laughs> for, for change. And, and I really just get to elevate the original impulses. Well, let's talk a little about your career. Now, you were born in North Carolina and then wound up in Detroit during its worst days. Yeah. I mean, I can't totally qualify Detroit as its worst days, but at least it felt like I mean, I grew up in rural North Carolina. Uh, small, small town. We didn't lock our doors. We still don't lock our doors down there. Don't no one go to my house. <laughs> and uh, it, it was great as a young person to just roam free. You know, I played in creeks. I ran ran around in the woods. You know, I, I didn't have to come home until the stoplights came on. And then I, I ended up in Detroit in the midst of the crack epidemic. It was a really difficult time for the city, and in a, a difficult time as a young man coming into his own, a young queer man. You know, a young black queer man. Yeah, but blackness wasn't a Detroit is 80 percent black. At least it was at the time. And so the blackness wasn't the thing, though. You know, I did go to school in the suburbs and I have friends who could not visit me in the city. Their parents were like, no way, Jose. It was just that legacy inherited after the riots. But I think Detroit gave me access to the Detroit Institute of the Arts, one of the most incredible public museums uh, in our nation. And then also, you know, creating theater, you know, being at a school that had tons of theater and then the great theaters in downtown Detroit that are still, you know, producing and presenting. I went to the school in Notre Dame, a Marist Catholic school. And I remember the year before in seventh grade, my mom was like, you're going to a Catholic school because if you go to a public school, you'll get beat up, which is her nice way of saying I'm looking out for you. You know, and she took an extra job so that she could pay the tuition, you know, a very dedicated mom. And, you know, I, I go to Notre Dame and they've got theater and they've got band and, you know, I'm a big old nerd and there were other nerds and everyone there was like just trying things out. And I, you know, did something like eight shows. The first show was Sound of Music. <laughs> How did you find that out? Oh, my gosh. My first show was Sound of Music. My main job was to push the furniture on stage and off stage. But I also was a guest at the Von Tropp's house. I was meeting the kids and I was like, well, if I'm going to be a guest and I'm black, then I'm probably from an African nation. So I went and found this African fabric appropriation and created this sash to wear over my suit. But you became a director or wanted to be a director when you were uh, working on Oklahoma. In this production of Oklahoma, I guess I was a junior in high school and it just clicked. You know, the whole time I've been looking at how things move together. I had opinions about when people should make their crosses. Uh, you know, I've always just sort of been a leader in that way. And I, and I go to my drama teacher and I'm like, I think I'm a director. And she says, great. Why don't you assist me on arsenic and old lace? <laughs> I'm like l learning all the chestnuts of dominant white culture <laughs> as an early career director. At what point did you begin to realize that there are black playwrights out there and plays that are a little bit deeper than the standard canon? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great question, you know, because as a young person, the majority of the material you're getting, is, at least when I was growing up, was from a canon of whiteness. First, it was Edward Albee. Whew. I remember the first time I read Zoo Story. And I went, whoa, whoa, I don't get it all. But this is a world that, I, that like, is charged and is rough. And it feels like life, but like bigger. And then I read every play he'd written. You know, I just had that voracious appetite. And then I got to college and luckily Sydney Mahone was visiting. I went to Dartmouth and she was a visiting professor teaching Black Theater USA. 
And it was the works of George Wolfe and Susan Laurie Parks that grabbed me reading The Colored Museum that first time. And it, and it was wonderful because it was like deconstructing blackness and then constructing ideas of self. And it was funny and witty. And it had a form that was not a traditional story form. And then, you know, I got to Susan Laurie Parks' work and here were like rhythms that like just grabbed me. I mean, Susan Laurie works in like what I call a jazz aesthetic. There's repetition, there's the building of a theme, there's, you know, extraneous movements on the themes. And then it was deeply intellectual as well. So like here you've got musicality, you've got deep intellectual, and then at the center of it is just really good storytelling. Uh, and so when I found their two works, I knew that there was a really a space for me as a black artist in the theater. Apparently, at one point, you weren't all that interested in dealing with societal, cultural, and political issues, but you suddenly got turned on to it. Yeah. I think one of the ways I dealt with or responded to the dominancy of white culture in America was I, I created a narrative in my head that, like, I didn't have post-racial as a term back then, but I was like, you know, Dr. King and Malcolm X died so that I could be whomever and I'm not limited by my blackness and that specificity isn't necessary. And so I was just like trying to create work that, that had big themes that weren't linked to anything. Honestly, it was not linked to anything. And it wasn't until, again, I met the works of George Wolfe and Susan Laurie Parks that I sort of had an awakening. And then I also, it was Dale Orlander Smith too. I started reading her plays and there was an incredible assignment in undergraduate where we had to uh, rewrite Shakespeare from our own point of view. And I remember channeling my mom and my cousins. And suddenly, like, inside of th that true voice and cultural specificity was my humor, uh, was my queerness, was my specific way of looking at the world. And so those things led me to say, oh, my, uh, myself, my roots are necessary. And then I found myself bringing my childhood to bear and my growing up in the black church to bear and the struggle being a black person in America and also the joy of black culture. I mean, like, I think about the way we, we celebrate holidays. Like, here we are at Thanksgiving time. If I was to go home, I would be in a house with 40 people. You know, everybody, so many cousins, so much great food. Before you even eat, you're packing your plate to go, all the stories. Well, that brings me to a question. Why aren't you writing plays? Ooh, fear. Really? Let's be totally honest. Yeah, because I carry many stories and many incredible histories with me. And the act of playwriting is not just getting those stories out it is the revision it is the form it is the craft as a leader of a theater and as a director i fear the time that would take away from the other things you're also doing something called walks which are well this one where you took people around took them to statues and had them talk to the statues another you had people going naked are you still doing those? I still conceive of them. I haven't done one for a year. But that is a form of writing for me. One of the reasons I got inspired by the walks, and, and I collaborate a lot with this artist, Todd Shalom, who introduced me to the form, is the walk is inherently participatory. 
Now we may be walking, we may be moving in our wheelchair. However, we're moving through space. We're moving through it together. And as soon as you walk through a space and the artist calls you, you know, points your eye or your point of view to a thing, you can start to reshape or rethink the space. Like if we look here, I mean, we're sitting across from this coffee table and there's like seven things on it. Well, we could decide that this coffee table is a canvas okay. and we could place these things on it in, in a poetic relationship one to the other. And so that ability to sort of just in a public space start to question and to reassemble, to give it an aesthetic framework. You know, I, I created Monumental Walk because a partner and I were down in D.C. and I was like, hmm, who decided that these monuments should be where they are? Who gets honored with the monument? And so I wanted to bring that questioning into the public space. And that's why we talk to the monuments. You know, we have conversations with them. You know, we talk as them. We move as them through public space. We create new ones with our bodies. And so with little to nothing, with just ourselves in a space and a question, we can start to map and rewrite and question our histories. Nigel Smith, when you're creating a season mm. for Flea, what exactly are you looking at? Are you just looking at plays that draw you? Are you looking at plays that an audience would like? Yeah. Are you looking at plays that go in strange directions? Because this is not your traditional company. It's not the public. So what exactly do you look for yourself when you're working at the Flea? You know, the great thing about the Flea is that we're an off-off-Broadway institution, which means we get to do the work that we are meant to do in the world. At the center of our mission, you know, we raise a joyful hell in a small space in downtown New York. And our ethos is to get underneath their skin. We're the Flea. We're an irritant. I think about wanting our audiences at the end of a show to have something that they have to be talking about or thinking about or do something with. And so how does that turn into season planning? I want works that feel extremely contemporary in what they're questioning and working with. I want them to make us question. And so I'm open to that. And the way a season comes into focus is there'll be like one or two plays that are starting to really speak to me and I feel like we could do really well. Uh, and like in our current season, uh, we call it Color Brave. It's a season of Color Brave plays. And all of the plays are dealing with color, colorism, racism, in some really provocative, wonderfully theatrical way. And like it started with two or three of them, and then I started to curate around them plays that I really loved. I mean, we have also have a resident company of artists. Uh, we have the Bats, who are our resident actors, and we have resident directors. So I'm thinking about what you know fits well inside of their skill set. It's a large company with 140 actors, so I also know that we can do shows of scale, and that's something that's unique to us. And I'm also looking for artists that are um, pushing the form. You know, the first show this year, Geraldine and Noah's Scraps, began as there's a little hip-hop poem, and then it goes into realism for about 60 minutes. In that realism, we're looking at four young black kids in Bed-Stuy, after their friend has been shot by the police. So that exciting incident happened before the play, and now we're watching how they respond and react and how their lives change because of that. And then the last 20 minutes of the play, the playwright, she takes us inside of the mind of an eight-year-old black boy whose father it was that was shot. And, and so then we move into expressionism. How does a young black boy who is suffering from neglect and historical trauma and inherited trauma how does he navigate that? And then how do you take an audience inside of that space? 
so yeah, so like it's urgent, it's rough, it's necessary, and also it is uh, aesthetically challenging and ambitious. People go to New York. Where exactly is the flea? And the website is so we're theflea.org. And our theater, we have a three-theater complex, just a year old, and it's at 20 Thomas Street, and it's in Lower Manhattan near the World Trade Center. Nigel Smith, Holiday Sauce is now coming on. What projects do you have? Are you working on another project with Taylor? Where do you go from here other than Back to the Flea and the Elastic? Yes. Well, you know, Holiday Sauce is on. We got a week and a half of performances. And then I'm next at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. I'll be directing the world premiere of How to Catch Creation by Christina Anderson. You've been listening to an interview with Nigel Smith, who is the co-director of Holiday Sauce at the Curran until December 1st. For more information, you can go to sfcurran.com. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>